Welcome to the S2 Cognition Podcast. S2 is the official cognitive evaluation in sports, from youth to pro, where athletes and coaches build to win. We're glad to have you here on the S2 Cognition Podcast, and thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Harrison Hunter, and today's conversation is educational, to say the least. For those that are new here, welcome. We're excited to have you, and for those that are returning listeners, you'll notice we sound a bit different, better, some may say. Co-founders of S2 Cognition, Scott Wiley and Brandon Alley, join me today as we discuss how normal everyday cognition is measured versus how sports cognition, or what we refer to as speeded cognition, is measured. What are the different ways intelligence is measured? First, how on-field split-second decision-making is measured. And then we dive into how do intelligence and split-second decision-making fit into the overall picture of an athlete and their performances. To help continue our growth, we ask that you subscribe, rate, and review our show. We hope you enjoy. And Scott, thanks for joining me today uh, just to talk about, you know, a lot. If, you, if you've watched broadcasts, NFL broadcasts, MLB broadcasts, you've heard processing and what is processing. So today I hope we can define, A, what is sports cognition? And then maybe shed light on other ways that other things like IQ or intelligence are measured. What is processing, right? When people think of cognition, they often think thinking or attention or language or learning, memory, uh, all these things kind of work in tandem. Can, can, Brandon, can you define sports cognition? Yeah. So cognition as an umbrella term, you're exactly right, Harrison. There are a lot of different aspects of cognition, um, some of which take, you know, a uh, long uh a long time to unfold. So things like memory, things like language, all of those are aspects of cognition. I think we've tacked on the sports cognition piece. And you're right when you start talking about the way the vernacular is in the sports world these days, you're starting to hear processing speed and things like that. The term sports cognition really refers to those the cognitive aspects of athletic performance. And athletic performance happens fast. And so Scott and I sort of think about this in terms of uh, speeded cognition, if you will, rather than sports cognition. I do like the term sports cognition hmm. because it refers to, you know, sort of this umbrella of ath athletic performance. But really the types of cognition that occur in the game um, uh, happen in, you know, less than a second, less than a half second. If you think about it, a, a major league baseball hitter they're they're not only having to swing, but they're having to make speeded decisions about what pitch it is, where it's going to land in space. Um, all of those sorts of things in less than a quarter of a second. That is just, you know, remarkable. <laughs> so this notion of speeded cognition is is things that have been studied in the laboratory for, for decades um, and understanding how the brain processes information very rapidly uh, and then makes a decision. And in the sports world, um, cognition is a huge umbrella because there are aspects of cognition when you talk about learning the playbook. You talk about learning the schemes, learning the, com the complexity of the defense or the offense that you're facing the next week. But what we're kind of talking about and what S2 measures really is once you've crossed those white lines and the ball is snapped, you've got to execute all of that knowledge. You've got to execute in less than a half a second of these choices, these decision rules. So if the DB does this, here's the route I run. All of that, all of those kinds of decisions, if you will, come without awareness, right? That's part of the speeded 
part and really just less than half second time frame. When we think about all of those aspects, really cognition is one piece of the big broad sort of structure of the way we think and reason and make decisions as humans. Scott, you've done a lot of this sort of thinking um, about how all of these things interplay together, but what makes speeded cognition different uh, and more applicable to athletes? Yeah, I I love your definition and the way you described it. And I think you hit on a few variables or factors that are critical to understand when we're trying to define and think about sports cognition or speeded cognition. One is the sheer speed. And so cognition encompasses things that that happen over really short time scales. So like you said, sub-second, sub-half second. Cognition unfolds in our daily lives over many seconds to minutes. When I go order a cheeseburger at Five Guys, I'm using cognition to calculate and make decisions and you know think back on what I ordered last time and and hold in mind the order for all my family members um, we're using cognition but not all cognition is relevant or is critical for sports performance and so one of the ways to to think about this and I think this is really important in sports because sports kind of got hit from different angles Hey, we measure thinking, we measure cognition, and it's really important to understand the differences in the way cognition is assessed and the purposes for those different kinds of assessments. And so, for example, probably most familiar in the sports world are concussion tests. And so you sit down and you're taking a test that is really intended to measure your ability to think in everyday sorts of ways to manage everyday sorts of situations? Can you learn something new? Can you think conceptually? And sports concussion tests generally are evolve over seconds to minutes in terms of processing and making decisions and handling things. Came out of the, the world of neuropsychology. And Brandon, you and I spent a lot of time in our earlier uh, careers as clinical neuropsychologists using the kinds of tools we would use clinically to diagnose changes in cognition due to any number of conditions, head injuries, stroke, uh, diagnosing early Alzheimer's disease, or the effects of uh, other kinds of neurodegenerative conditions. Those tools were designed with a completely different purpose in mind to evaluate everyday thinking skills. When they start to change or when they have changed because of some kind of of medical condition or injury, those tools do not and were never intended to capture the kinds of millisecond, split-second processing that happens in sports. Another area where cognition is critically measured is in academic settings. So in education, uh, educational psychologists for for many, many decades have tried to characterize and quantify and measure academic-related thinking skills. So your ability to think abstractly, your language skills, as you alluded to earlier, uh, best reflected in things like intelligence or IQ. And so we hear IQ being quantified and measured in sports frequently, and it's 
Again, it was intended to capture the everyday sorts of thinking skills and reasoning skills that unfold over many seconds to many minutes to hours to days for a very different purpose than for capturing those split-second decisions. When you are measuring speeded cognition, you have to engage an entirely different set of methodologies. Uh, you have to use methodologies that were designed for millisecond-level precision, presenting things fast, uh, reacting fast, moving things dynamically over very short periods of time, sub-second, sub-half-second kinds of processing. And most of the tools that the sports world is familiar with are capturing the more everyday sorts of thinking skills. Now, as you mentioned, yeah, those can be important. Learning tendencies, ability to handle abstract concepts of a playbook. Absolutely, some of that can be important and valuable. Return to play following a concussion. Hey, is this person safe to drive? I mean, they sustained a pretty serious head blow. Those kinds of decisions, those tools are are adequate for. Does this person have some learning disabilities that need to be supported in their college program? You know, IQ-based measures will be important for that. But when the when the rubber meets the road, when you're making the kinds of decisions a hitter is making in the batter's box or a basketball player on the court or a soccer goalie reacting to something that's happening in sub-second time scales, those tools, those methods, those approaches are inadequate. You need tasks, methodologies designed to measure those unique brain systems that are measured in sports. And that was the whole basis and the differentiation between what we developed at S2 Cognition versus what has been out there for many years to capture those everyday sorts of thinking skills. It is very fascinating to me. Um, I, Dan Orlovsky is a great example of this because I just want to make a very clear uh, line in the sand of where we where we think processing is versus what we're talking about when talking about processing. A lot of what I see when people diagnose like, hey, he's getting his guys in the right alignment based on the defense, and Dan does a wonderful job about explaining what's happening, right? How the defenses react, what the quarterback is doing to get his guys in the right position. But all of that is pre-snap. So when it's described as processing, it is processing, but it's not the split-second decision-making processing, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting sort of concept, Harrison. We've done a lot of thinking because the term when we kind of got into the into this game was, you know, IQ, like sports-related IQ. So he's got a high football IQ. Well, what makes a player have football IQ? Uh, and, you know, Scott alluded to it. And Harrison, I think that some of this is what you're driving at. So we can delineate some athletes in history. We won't call any names out here, but we can delineate athletes in history who have great concepts of schemes, uh, uh, pre-snap recognition, all of those sorts of things that comes with game knowledge, comes with experience, comes with studying right. and recognition. Those guys have been encapsulated into this concept of high football IQ. But we also know that there's some players that that have that ability, but once the ball is snapped, there's a huge bottleneck, right? They don't make the right decision. They hesitate. They're slow to make their decisions. I think we consider those high football IQ guys. A lot of those guys are 
head coaches, they're coordinators. They understand the game at a level that most people don't. They can see things that most people can't, and they exploit their opponents because of that, right? And 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 then you've got guys like Peyton Manning who can do it all, right? So he can do all of that recognition. He can do all of that pre-snap, and then he also has the ability to make split-second decisions and accurate split-second decisions. So I think when we conceptualize, hey, this guy's got a great, a high football IQ, does that mean he's a great player or does that mean he really understands the game? I think to be at the the best of the best, you've got to have it all. You've got to have that ability to recognize pre-snap. You've got to have, make sense of things. You've got to have that ability, the Tom Brady's of the world that, hey, I've been in this situation before. I can kind of expect X, Y, or Z to happen. That sort of anticipation kind of thing. But you've also got to be able to execute in, in very short timescales. So processing is a large term. And Scott, I, I, you know, Every time that, you know, even you and I talk and I talk about processing, you, you ask me the question, processing what, right? So talk to us a little bit about, I know that you do a lot in that world of reaction time and processing speed, and it, it, it's, it's, it's an umbrella term, really, processing, right? Yeah, it's one of those terms that you love because everyone can kind of appreciate what you're talking about, but you hate it because it doesn't really tell you anything. Um, in some sense, uh, you're right. Processing. Yeah. He's got great processing speed or she's got great processing speed. Well, speed at processing what? And I think that is the most important, uh, concept that, that we tried to instill is the idea that there are lots of ways that we process information. I mean, even, vis- even visual information that makes it to our brain through our eyes, there are multiple different brain systems that are critically involved in processing different aspects of what the eyes see, from motion to fast recognition of what it is you see to tracking something in space to tracking multiple things moving in space. All of those systems involve processing and an individual can, an athlete can be really good at processing some aspects of what they see and have bottlenecks and inconsistencies and difficulties processing other things. And that's because their brains are wired differently. Then you get out to the motor side of things. Well, processing timing, like making split second millisecond adjustments like a hitter has to do where a few tens of milliseconds is the difference between missing the ball entirely, fouling one off, or hitting it squarely. Timing in an order of a few tens of milliseconds is the difference between making a block as a goalie versus just missing it. Uh, Are we talking about processing in a way that helps you control your impulses? So when we're talking about processing speed, it's important to understand there are layers of complexity associated with processing. And you know, if someone can process really efficiently in all of these areas or multiple areas, now you're probably getting to someone who is, you could start to say, they're just generally a really fast processor. Um, but we've seen quarterbacks, we've seen defensive backs, we've seen baseball players, soccer players, hockey players who can process with exceptional skill in a few areas and struggle in other areas. And the play good playbook gets morphed 
or the co coaches appreciate that and they fit that particular cognitive strengths and processing strengths to that player, to the, to the playbook, to the expectations and the responsibilities. And they try to mitigate or, or avoid some of those processing weaknesses in a way that allows that athlete to be successful. And so you can be, you can have some low areas in the way you process certain kinds of information and still be a successful athlete, but you got to know what are the things you do well and what are the things you might struggle with. So processing is a, a loaded term and there are layers of complexity associated with how we process information. Well, all of it's sort of loaded, right? Um, because I think anything that has to do with the brain and processing has become this stigmatized thing. So we wouldn't hesitate talking about somebody's physical weaknesses, right? And and we never hear, after the draft, we never hear on the football, well, this guy had the lowest bench press of all the people at the combine, right? You'd never, you'd never hear that. Um, and what do strength and conditioning coaches do these days? They find out what this athlete's strengths and weaknesses are from a physical standpoint and try to mitigate those weaknesses, whether that's through player development. So here's your lifting plan. Here's your specific designed lifting plan to we're going to use you on the field in this way, right? You've got 4-2 speed. It's a very different receiver than somebody with 4-8 speed and how you use that player. Same thing on the nutritional side. Same thing with recovery, right? I mean, we've seen some NFL teams that do blood work after certain recovery modalities so that they can tailor their recovery plan mm. to their specific needs. That's all that we're doing here with cognition is finding those strengths and weaknesses so we can mitigate, we can lean into those strengths, right? We can design a playbook that is designed for that particular athlete, um, and we mitigate weaknesses, right? And we've talked about this on in other situations. Um, you know, let's take a quarterback and we look at tracking capacity, right? That's your ability to broaden your attention and see the whole field, keep track of multiple moving objects. If you have a quarterback with low tracking capacity, does that mean he can't play quarterback? No, it doesn't. What it means is that we should start looking at how we structure that playbook from perhaps the 49er type playbook where you might be making reads from sideline to sideline to the maybe a high-low progression, right, to where we don't have to track, we don't have to broaden our attention. So the way that we structure around an athlete is the reason why we would want to assess all of these areas, just like you would in the weight room and, and other areas. Well, that's exactly yeah. the question I was going to ask. Scott, do you, Brandon, do you guys have real life examples of, okay, this is a scenario where a player, a hitter has low perception speed. Well, what do we do with that? Okay, a quarterback has low tracking. How does a coach help mitigate how that reveals itself on the field? I know, Brandon, you just went into the tracking. Scott, is there one in, with goalies or hitters? What are some examples you've seen? Yeah, um, I, I think before I answer that question, I think you're asking the, the most important question that's related to how we assess these things. You're asking questions about very specific ways that athletes are processing information in the game. You're just not going to get at that with the traditional everyday sorts of approaches to, to measuring cognition with IQ and neuropsychology and educational psychology. Those were just not designed to measure this. And so before you can even start to answer and address that question, you got to use the right tools. And that's kind of been 
you know, our, our motivation is to, hey, let's, we've got tools that have been developed in the brain sciences for decades that can give us insight into these things. You're exactly right. I'll share a great example. We, we tested a, a big league hitter a few years ago who um, performed our impulse control task. And I, at multiple points in the evaluation, I feared that he was going to pick up our assessment, <laughs> our millisecond precision assessment system, and throw it through the window. Uh, <laughs> Couple G's and then he the was, window. then I was going to be next. Uh, <laughs> he was a big dude. He is uh, a perennial. I didn't know Dewan Jones run. played baseball. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's a perennial high home run hitter, uh, and but he has a tendency to punch out often. So. He, he got up from the impulse control after he finished the evaluation. He made a beeline right over to me, and he said, you just exposed what I experience as a hitter. Yeah, I couldn't stop myself from impulsively reacting in ways, and I know I wasn't supposed to do it, but I was doing it anyway. What's happening here? That's what it feels <laughs> like sometimes in the batter's box. And so it engaged in this great conversation about – you know, what do we, what is an impulse? Why does a pitch, every pitch out of the hand create an impulse? And how do we control that? And how do we train that? You just don't get that information if you're not measuring the things that hitters are doing. Sub half second, um, this was an incredible athlete who could react in, in this task in the order of 270, 280 milliseconds. I mean, at the superhuman end of the spectrum, but that speed led to a lot of vulnerabilities with, with biting on impulses. So you, you just don't get that if you're not measuring those same systems that athletes are using in the game. So we've been talking a lot about processing, right? If, it, if it's football, we've described the pre-snap versus post-snap. If it's you know a hitter, it's once the ball's released out of the hand, how quickly they have to react from 60 feet, 6 inches to see what pitch it is, understand, should I swing, make a guess, an estimation as to where to swing, when to swing, all of these things. How does intelligence and measuring these split-second on-field decision-making capabilities, Brandon, how do both of those aspects fit into the overall picture of an athlete's performance? Yeah, I think it goes back to our earlier discussion about, you know, sports-specific IQ, right? Intelligence, um, intellect, those kinds of things that for the most part, we, we, we make the delineation that for things surrounding intelligence and intellect, there's an aspect of reasoning. You have to reason to make a decision. You have to reason, you, you know, you're doing a maze, right? So you have to kind of look ahead and reason where you should go and, and those sorts of things. And so um, I think intellect and intelligence is an important vessel for understanding your role in sports, understanding the playbook, understanding what your responsibilities are. Um, and so that underlies an important concept of playbook knowledge and situational awareness and understanding the concept of the game, con the concept of what your coach is asking you to do. Um, you know, as a card-carrying neuropsychologist, I can say that we haven't evolved much in the last hundred years, really, in the way that we assess intellect and intelligence. I think we've moved the needle a little bit on 
some proxies for um, uh, different aspects of intellect, right? So, so when Scott and I were getting our doctorates, it was vocabulary. So the bigger vocabulary you had, the more words you knew, that meant that you would be more successful, you were more intelligent. I think in the last decade or so, they've sort of moved into the, well, working memory is a, is a good proxy. So the more information you can manipulate, hold in mind and manipulate, that's a better predictor of IQ. But then they go on to say things like IQ is reflective of educational attainment. So how many degrees you'll get, um, uh, uh, occupational attainment, so how good of a job you'll get. Well, these are sort of societal sort of constructs, not measuring things like, you know, I think there's been in, in, in the emotional IQ side, which has evolved over the last couple of decades to 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 highlight the fact that we have uh, different levels of being able to understand uh, other people's emotions and empathize and sympathize with other people. And I think what we're doing here is we're we're shining a spotlight on other sides of or other aspects of intellect, if you will, or intelligence, if you will. It's just a different aspect of it. It's sports intellect or sports intelligence. And so, of course, obviously, after measuring 40,000 plus athletes, we can test, you know, we can attest to the fact that you can be horrific in the classroom. You can struggle in the classroom, and you can absolutely crush I, uh, uh, S2 or, or speeded cognition tests. So it's a different way that the brain operates, and some of these folks, as Scott has alluded to earlier, are just wired. They're wired differently, first off. They're not wired for school-based assessment or IQ-based tests but they're wired for speeded decisions and speeded processing. So can we say, are some of these folks put on the planet, so to speak, for sports? Absolutely. I would agree that, um, that some of these guys are just wired to be able to see visual details in a pitch like spin and uh, uh, angles and, and, and trajectories. Uh, players are put on the planet to, uh, you know, we've talked about there's an article and the athletic that we were part of about Justin Jefferson, the way his brain is wired on the S2 evaluation, if there was to build a slot receiver or somebody who could improvise and, and make decisions based on what he sees post-snap, that's him. I mean, these guys are wired for sports. And so it's just a different way to think about intellect or IQ. And I think we need to move away from the classic IQ means you're going to have success in the classroom, or IQ means you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer, um, you know, and, and, and more into how are we wired to engage in the world. Um, so I think when we start thinking about all of those buckets, all of those buckets can make a performer right? Um, people with higher emotional IQs are likely really good in certain situations and perhaps the theater and perhaps more artistic uh, and creative uh, uh, careers and trajectories. Uh, people wired for, for speeded cognition uh, are more, you know, are going to have a little bit more success in this, in, as they climb the sports ladder. But all of them go together. So to kind of circle back and answer your original question, I think intelligence, as we typically have historically measured it, is important to know about your athlete, to know how well is he going to grasp this or how quickly will he grasp this. So if he has a low IQ, it doesn't mean he's not going to learn it. It just may take him 
longer to learn it. Same thing with the S2. If you've got a low S2 score, doesn't mean you can't play sports. It just means that you may have some struggle points. It may take you a little longer to operate. We may need to structure your your play or your playbook a little differently. Hmm. Brandon, I I love what, how you just described that, and I I think to put another extension on what you said about the difference of the speeded cognition, the speeded cognition systems are tightly connected and bound to our visual system and our motor systems too. So when I sit down at a dinner table to calculate the tip on my food bill, I can sit there and cogitate and think and, you know, fumble around with the numbers in my head for a long period of time. And it's not really engaging my motor system or even my eyes necessarily. When you're on the field or on the court and you're making those split-second decisions, you're talking about these really dynamic loops and feed that feedback loops that connect your vision to your decision systems, your cognitive systems, and your motor systems. And they all got to play in harmony. Uh, it's an incredible orchestra of activity that connects eyes to brain to body that also is a big part of the separation. So these systems, you can't. That's why you can't just study the, the visual processing systems because you're leaving out a tremendous aspect of what it takes to be an athlete. All these motor control and dynamic ways we uh, are stable and rhythmic in our movements, yet flexible and adaptive in our movements. These systems that operate and are tightly bound to the motor system and communicating with the motor system are so critical. That's another distinction and your your example there kind of prompted that that thought in my mind that we're talking about the way these brain systems connect eyes and body well, not not only that you know the coolest part about this is you guys have real life examples of multiple different sports across multiple different facets right we have special force example we have hockey examples we have baseball examples what's unique about all this and nascar drivers and pit crew they're all different assessments. We, what you guys have done is you've shaped what the brain and, and the most important responsibilities of the brain in that moment at their assignment, what they have to do to accomplish what they do in their field, whether that's sport or otherwise, it's morphed based on what we think is most important. I, are most other assessments that gather these everyday thinking skills, is, are they the same? It, <laughs> Not only are they different, it's. I think you bring up a good point that, um, you know, being in academics for for almost two decades prior to S two, well, one of the most interesting things is, you know, let's just take football for example. Our football battery has eight separate tasks in it. Um, there are probably. 100 to 400 labs around the world that study that one simple process. Mm -hmm. And they may break a piece of that process off into another little subset. And so these aspects of brain, the way the brain performs, you know, are, are studied around the, the world for, for decades in isolation 
in concert with other cognitive processes, how our brain networks work together. So you can think of about it as an individual process and the, the way that that process is a cog in a larger network. Um, all of that comes down to the intricacies in, in how wild and amazing the human brain is. Mm. But each one of those pieces are responsible for things that we engage in in everyday life. You know, our ability to track multiple moving objects is not just for quarterbacks, right? When we pull up to a stop sign, we've got to keep track of where other cars are, where a jogger may be coming across the crosswalk, where a football may be running across the road. Uh, you know, our impulse control system, uh, you're probably tired of hearing me use this example, but the impulse control system is something everybody can relate to is, you know, sitting at that red light and the turn lane next to you, the arrow turns green and you impulsively hit your gas and then you've got to hit your brake. That impulse control system, it operates in baseball to keep you from chasing pitches out of the zone. It operates in basketball to keep you from jumping on the pump fake, the head fake. It operates in football to keep you jumping off sides on the hard count. So Understanding the specific needs, not just of the sport, but even right. the position, um, is critical. And it takes a more uh, flexible approach, if you will. I think most assessment tools in history from the beginning of time have been very static and haven't mm. you know, tried to evolve – um, you know, just like I alluded to earlier about classic IQ tests, but most assessments don't evolve in the way that they think about the game and understanding very small aspects of the way the brain operates in these environments. And so, you know, that's a real life example is working with the special forces, right? I mean, the way they view these speed of cognition things are very different than the way an academic like Scott and I would view it. And how do you work with it? And how does it operate under uh, this guy's going to only get four hours of sleep every night uh, or this guy's going to take X, Y, or Z drug? Um, you know, understanding how you can push around cognition mm -hmm. and, and all those aspects. And so you've got to flexibly think and you've got to adjust kind of on the fly with a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I would, I, I, I think it's, it's a really important question because concussion tests are pretty uniform across sports. And that's because they're measuring everyday sorts of thinking skills. Well, whatever sport you play, you're going to engage in everyday sorts of thinking skills. And so the same concussion test is given to hockey athletes, soccer athletes, tennis athletes, name your sport is given in a military setting. Same with IQ tests. You know, there's, there's IQ tests that are given to athletes and it's the same test irrespective of your sport. And that to us just did not make sense. The cognitive demands of a hitter in a batter's box, while as Brandon so eloquently pointed out, there are some similarities to what a hitter is doing, to what a tennis player is doing, to even what a goalie is doing. In some respects, there are some unique differences between what a hitter is doing in a batter's box and what a middle linebacker or a midfielder is doing on the football and soccer fields, respectively. Those differences cannot be appreciated if you're using just a one-stop shop, all-inclusive measure of general cognitive functioning. So you're exactly right. One of the key things we thought was important was that every sport 
places different demands. There's some overlap and similarities, right? Like, like Brandon said with the impulse control, that shows up in most sports. So it's on most of our sports batteries, but every application uh, we recently have have gotten uh, knee deep into NASCAR driving and racing, uh, and and the differences between pit crew demands, a, a tire jacker, and a tire changer versus a driver. Boy, that's a really intense conceptual exercise to sit and think, and then the conversations we've had with with cup drivers and and coaches and and and. Uh, pit crew coaches has been absolutely informative. We're blending expertise with the cognitive science of what they're having to do to create a battery that's specific to their unique uh, needs and demands. Law enforcement, right? We're talking about split-second decisions. That's a big buzzword. When the stakes are, are high and the consequences of getting something wrong are, are that serious, right. It is important to craft an evaluation and assessment of the most important cognitive skills that law enforcement or military operators will face, um, where the consequences are quite different than they typically are in sports, or not typically, always are different than those in sports. You know, going back to the bench and waiting for your next at bat's a lot different than the the stakes in a in a in a military theater. But uh, so. That unique shaping of the assessment to the unique demands across the different sports and and performance situations we encounter, we thought was so critical and such a, a radical departure from what is typically done in personality assessment and IQ and and neuropsych assessment, where you give the same battery to everyone. Scott, I'm gonna I'm gonna flip you on your I'm going to flip your script here and I'm going to make you answer it because I was forced to answer it on a call yesterday we had with a very high level uh performance specialist um what in your opinion or what have you seen that are some common denominators rather than the uniqueness of each sport are there any cognitive processes that we've seen or that you've noticed that sort of can span across sports and and really you know, I think we could argue that they all sort of span sports, but which ones separate sort of the best yeah. athletes across all sports? Gosh, I, I, I love that question because there is kind of this, uh, this super athlete profile that I think we'll, we'll eventually uh, land on. I have a hard time thinking that one component of this super athlete that's important is is controlling impulsive reactions so your ability to keep yourself under control to not fall prey to jukes fakes misdirection deception all of the things that opponents attempt to do to get you to bite even for a split second so they can exploit your 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 impulsive reflexive decision that to me seems like a critical component i think the other one and this is the one you talked about yesterday absolutely this ability to notice the less obvious to notice the subtle things on the fly the in-game recognition and, and detection of of tells tips tendencies patterns especially the more subtle patterns that can tell you or tip you about your 
opponent's intentions. What route is this opponent going to run? What do they tend to do? And they put the ball in their left hand or their left foot and they, you know, they, they take this hip angle. All those little subtle cues that can help you identify patterns and tendencies. The earlier you can do that, the earlier you can adjust and you can adapt. When you're playing, there are just athletes, there's all kinds of information flooding the brain. A lot of it's irrelevant to what you're doing. A lot of it you want to just, you know, shield and block out as a form of staying locked in on what you're doing. But there are patterns of information that you can decipher and pick up and your brain can stitch together to give you that that leg up or that advantage and and being able to anticipate and understand the the tendencies of your opponent and i think athletes who possess that possess a really special edge do you feel like the impulse control measure is also just a good proxy for somebody's motor control just how well they can control their motor system yeah, you know, I think when you're talking about impulse control, it's there was a paper written back in the, I believe it was the late 1980s, early 1990s, that was entitled "The Varieties of Impulsivity," and I think what 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 that author really laid out well was a case for the concept of different ways that we can be impulsive. So I can be impatient as a form of impulsivity. So I can react too soon. Um, I can be impatient in that I'm, I'm waiting, you know, waiting for someone to get there, waiting for someone to get there. And then I go ahead and order my, I keep coming up with cheeseburger. I must be hang, hungry <laughs> or hangry, one of the two. Yeah, I, I order my cheeseburger because I'm impatient. I don't want to wait anymore. I'm hungry. I want to eat. Um, impulsivity that's related to... Um, discounting the moment for what you could get later and so you know gambling is a great example of this i'm gonna impulsively put all my stakes in the potential for an immediate reward even though putting that money in my savings and being able to do something bigger and more impactful to change my life later uh to impact my life later may be you know the better optimal decision and then we get to impulsivity that's really tightly bound to our motor reactions when we're in a situation where we have to react quick and we can fall prey to, you know, swinging at pitches you don't want to be swinging at, biting on jukes or the double hitch as a, as a cornerback. Those kinds of motor impulsivities is what we're really trying to capture uh, in our evaluation. But I, I think you're right. I think that motor impulsivity, I mean, there's evidence that individuals who struggle with uh, hyperactivity disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, have a harder time controlling reflexive impulses in certain situations. So yes, I think we're getting at an element of what it means to be impulsive from a motor sense. Man, impulse control maybe have have to have its own uh, episode for you to discuss in, yeah, in depth. I, I, I got to give a shout out though real quick to Brandon because he noted another process, which I'll just allude to quickly because it's for the podcast. But the other thing I think is a separator you mentioned yesterday was the ability to improvise in the moment. Things break down, things suddenly change. How quickly can you make that change of direction decision? Mm. You've got to physically be able to execute improvised movements right 
I may see that I need to redirect my motor system, but move redirecting my motor system these days, the message goes out, but it hits a roadblock. You've got to <laughs> physically be able to execute a change of direction, make this incredible play. You know, you think about the athletes who just in an instant, you just scratch your head and say, how do they disrupt that play? How did they get a hand on the ball? How did they adjust at the last second to go under the hoop and do a Dr. J off the glass kind of, or a Michael Jordan kind of shot. That ability to instantly recognize that what you're about to do is, is going to lead to <laughs> failure yep. and to rapidly change directions and make an adjustment. That process starts in your brain, the brain's recognition of the need to all, choose an alternate path, switch gears, switch tracks in terms of your motor control. That seems to be a really important aspect of successful athletes across sports. And from a big overarching perspective, I mean, it, it's dealing with the unexpected, right? And as you climb the ladder, yeah. that that's that's what separates, right? That's what coordinators are doing is they're trying to throw something that violates what you're expecting to happen. And so in pro sports and high level college sports, you've got to deal with that unexpectancy. And so players who, who struggle with that tend to hesitate. They tend to freeze, become a little bit rigid in, in, in their play. And, and it doesn't allow them to adapt and adjust with the game because you've got to learn how to, to adjust on the fly. Um, and so I think that, that that also can separate, you know, just these elite athletes. Yeah, I, I appreciate you two jumping on to discuss the difference between I, I like Brandon, you changed the term, right? We thought it was sports cognition, but really it's speeded cognition, right? Because it, it has other avenues outside of sports. Thanks so much for jumping on to talk about this, man. I, I know the listenership. Anytime delineation is used in, in any uh, form of discussion, I know that I need to up my education. So I know that the audience hopefully was educated today as well. Thanks for listening to the S2 Cognition Podcast. If you like the content we are putting out, please subscribe with that plus sign at the top of our app, leave a review about today's episode, and please share it with a friend. You can follow us on Twitter at S2 Cognition and Instagram at S2.Cognition. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, please visit our website at s2cognition.com slash podcast. Thanks again for listening to the S2 Cognition podcast. I'm your host, Harrison Hunter, signing off for now. We'll talk to you on our next episode. Have a great Halloween. <laughs>